Well, I want to welcome you here, especially those of you that are visiting with us. Welcome to those of you that are over in the venue. Man, there's just, there's just a lot of people over there. And thank you to those of you that lead the singing, the band over there. And if you're watching online, welcome. If you're listening on the radio, welcome. Um, we're just glad that you're with us. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, the, all of the verses or most of them will be inside your little note. Uh, thing we give you, or they'll come up on the jumbotrons, and even on the jumbotrons in the in the venue, and and all of that. Um, we're in a, a series here at Big Belly Grace where we're studying the life of of Nehemiah, and it's really a, a a study on leadership. Someone once said that everything rises or falls on on leadership, and I think that's true. Your your marriage rises and falls on leadership. Your family rises or falls on, on leadership. Your, your business rises or falls on, on leadership. Your personal life rises or falls on how you choose to lead your life. You're in control of your life. You, you, you control it. How it ends up is in your hands, how you choose to lead your own personal life. One of the verses that I've shared throughout this series is Proverbs chapter 28, and it says this, when there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily, but wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. Beloved, Wise and knowledgeable leaders, husbands and wives, bring stability to their marriages. Wise and knowledgeable leaders, moms and dads, they bring stability to their families. Wise and knowledgeable leaders, business owners, they bring stability to their business. Wise and knowledgeable leaders, maybe you're a manager, a supervisor, you're a coach of a team, you bring stability to the places that you work, the people that you oversee, the, the team that you, you, you coach. Wise and knowledgeable leaders, you, you bring stability to your own personal life. You show me somebody whose life is you know, spiraling out of control, heading down a, a rat hole. And I'll show you somebody who is not managing their own life. They're not leading their own life in a wise and knowledgeable way. So where do you find the wisdom and knowledge you need to be successful? Well, listen to what Joshua said in Joshua chapter 1. He said, study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so that you'll be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then, only when you've studied this book, only when you've memorized this book, only when you've made the decision to, to live out this book, that's when you will prosper and succeed in all that you do. And that word prosper there doesn't necessarily mean financially. You, you, you might prosper financially. 
because you decided that you were going to study this book and, and, and memorize this book and keep your nose in this book and then live this, this book out. Beloved, if you want to have a successful marriage, you got to know the Word of God. You got to meditate on the Word of God. You got to memorize the Word of God, and then you got to make the decision to live the Word of God out. If you want to have a successful family, you got to know what God's Word says. You got to meditate on God's Word. And then you got to make the decision that I'm going to live by God's Word. I'm actually going to live it out. If you want to have a successful business, you got to know what God has to say about having a godly business. And where integrity is found, and, and you memorize it, you keep your nose in it, and say, I'm actually going you know, to live this out. If you want to have a successful life, listen, you got to know the Word of God. you got to study the Word of God, and then you got to make the choice to live the Word of God out. And the key is, is living it out, actually applying it to your life. Otherwise, you're just a hearer of the Word, you see. I know lots of people that know the Word of God really well. Man, they'll read through the Bible, you know, every year. They memorize all kinds of verses. They come to church and sing all the songs, right? They know a lot about the Word, but they don't live it out. They don't do what it says. And their lives are a bloody, stinking mess, a lot of them. Knowing the Word of God is good. Studying the Word of God is good. You know, memorizing the Word of God is good. Knowing all the books of the Bible and the order that they go in is a good thing. But what matters is, is when you choose to say, you know what, I'm going to actually do it. I'm going to actually live by it. And you show me a, a husband and a wife that have committed to that, and I'm going to show you a marriage. It's probably going to be pretty good. You show me a, a, a mom and a dad that say, you know what, I'm going I'm to live by this book. I'll show you a family that's probably doing pretty, pretty well. You show me a businessman that says, you know what, I'm going to live by the principles in this book. I'm going to build my business on the principles in, on this book. I'm going to live it out in my life and in my business. I'll show you a business that's probably doing pretty well. You show me an individual who makes the decision, I'm going to live by what this book has to say. I'm going to study it and live it out. I'll show you a life that's probably going to be well, well lived. The Bible says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is inspired by God and it's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. This is what tells us what is true. It's what will tell you what's wrong in your marriage. It'll tell you what's wrong in your family. It'll tell you what's wrong in your business. It'll tell you what's wrong in your own personal life for crying out loud. And anybody who doesn't believe that has never read it. They're showing their ignorance. This book has a lot to say about lots of different areas of life. Lots of them. Goes on and says, the Bible corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. See, the world's going to tell you how to live. The world's going to tell you how to, how to you know, you know, have a, you know, raise your kids. The world's going to give you all kinds of advice on how to, you ought to run your businesses and how you ought to live your own personal life. The world's going to give you all kinds of wisdom. And what's unfortunate is we tend to live by that. Instead of saying, you know what, I don't care what the world says. 
I don't care what Tony Robbins says. I don't care what Oprah says. I don't care what any of those guys have to say. What I care about is what does God's word say? And then go, I'm going to live by that. It may not make you the most popular you know, guy at work. It may not make you the most popular you know, person on the planet. But if you want to have success and prosper in, in, in your family and business and all those kinds of things, my suggestion is you do what God's word says, you see. God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. It prepares you men on how to be a good husband. Isn't that a good work? Hey, ladies, it prepares you on how to be a good wife. That's a good work. It prepares us as parents how to be good parents. That's a good work. It's the scriptures. And the, the, the book of Nehemiah is where we find a lot of great thoughts as it relates to leadership. Yes, it's a history book. It was written about 2,500 years ago, and it tells us a little piece of Jewish history. But it's far more than that. There are some incredible principles that we can tease out of it that we can apply to our personal lives, our families, our marriages, our, our businesses, or you know, whatever area of leadership we, we might have. Now, I want to kind of give you the backdrop to the story. Most of you in this room know it. But I know we always have people here that this is your first time. And it would just be really rude if I just jumped into the story and you had no clue what the story was about. You know, we're, we're all insiders, and they all know what's going on, but you don't know what's going on. I remember I used to go to church before I knew the Lord, and, man, the preacher would just jump into something, and I'd sit out there lost. I didn't even know what he was talking about because I had no context. I, I didn't know where the story started. And so let me tell you a little bit about the, 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 the book of Nehemiah. God's people were living in a, a place, a city called Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is still there today. And that was God's city, and that's where God's people lived, the, 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 the Jewish people. God loved everybody on, on the planet, but he had chosen the Jews to be his special people for a special purpose. Didn't mean he didn't, you know, like other people or love other people. And God had told his people, look, here's how I want you to live. He had given the Jewish people some commands, some rules to live by, sort of like we do as parents, right? What parent doesn't give their children rules to live by? I want you to be home at 11 o'clock. I want you to be home by 12 o'clock. I want you to do your homework. Your job is to mow the lawn. You take out the garbage. I mean, we all do that, and God's no different. He gave the, his people some rules, some commands, said, I want you to live by these things. And mom, dad, when, when your children don't obey you, they come home after the curfew, or they don't take the trash out on the day they're supposed to, or they don't mow the lawn, they don't do their chores, it comes with a consequence, doesn't it? Absolutely it does. Doesn't mean you don't love them or care about them, but it comes with a consequence, and the same thing is true about God. He had given the Jews some rules, some commands to live by, and they didn't want to live by them. And it came with a consequence. And it came with a heavy consequence. God allowed a, an invading army, the Persian army, led by a, a king by the name of Artaxerxes to attack Jerusalem. And in those days, they, you know, they didn't have policemen like we have that protect our city. How you would protect a city in those days, you'd put a big wall up. And the wall is what protected you from you know, bad guys and stuff. And it may take them months to break through the walls or the, the gates, and at least you'd have time to you know, get away or maybe defend yourself or whatever, throwing rocks, shooting bows and arrows at them or whatever. 
Anyway, this Persian army attacked, and with their battering rams, they, they knocked down all the walls, bust through the gates, and man, the, the, they, they went into the city and just decimated the, the, the whole town, man, ruined all the homes, ruined all of the businesses. There was a place that the Jews would worship, the temple, they wiped all that out, and so the consequence was, was pretty severe, but it got worse. They rounded up all the people, all the Jewish people, and deported them to Babylon, which is where Iraq is today. It's about, it was about 1,000 miles from Jerusalem. So not only was the city and the walls you know, decimated, but all of the people were, 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 were taken into captivity. They were deported, if you will, to uh, Babylon. And that's where they stayed for decades. So their city was just in a, a ruins, and, and you know, weeds were overgrowing the walls and the houses and the businesses. I mean, there were probably rats and varmints running all around and looters, you know. I mean, imagine God's city. It was in a huge disgrace. It was, it was a horrible situation. Well, there came a moment when God began to extend his grace to the Jewish people. After decades of being in captivity, he allowed a, a group of Jews to come back to Jerusalem and when they showed up, obviously, it must have been a, a, just a very depressing sight to see this city in, in, in a shambles, God's city. And they show up, and they began to do their best to kind of fix it up. They, they were able uh, to, to rebuild their, their uh, temple. A guy named, by the name of Zerubbabel rebuilt their temple so they could at least worship God the way God wanted to be worshiped in the Old Testament. And then another wave of Jewish folks got to come back to the city and uh, Nehemiah, the, the, the character who wrote Nehemiah, uh, had never been there, we don't think. We think his mother and father were in the captivity, taken back to Babylon, and he's actually born in Babylon. But he lived a God-honoring life there, and, and God let him kind of uh, work his way up the, the totem pole of the Persian government, and he became a high official. He was the cupbearer to the king, King Artaxerxes. It means he had access to the king because he lived a righteous life which I want you to know, most of the time when you choose to live a God-honoring life, it's amazing how God will put you in strategic places, lift you up to high places. Well, that's what happened to Nehemiah. He had access to the king. He was a high official in the Persian government. Well, his brother comes back from Jerusalem, goes to Babylon, and meets up with Nehemiah and says, man, the city's a mess the walls are broken down. The cities are ruins. The, you know, all the businesses are tore down. It's a, the morale of the people's down. And it really grieved Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah goes to the king and says, hey, king, I, can, can I go back? Would you allow me to leave my job and go to Jerusalem so I could rebuild the city, rebuild the walls, bring some dignity back to the people in the disgrace? That's God's city, you know, and it's just a mess. And the king lets him go. So Nehemiah makes a, a, a probably four or five month journey. It's what it took to get from Babylon to Jerusalem, about a thousand miles. He makes the five month journey. He shows up. He sees, you know, the city in ruins. The walls are in ruins. The town's in ruins. He comes up with a plan and he starts putting families all together and everybody's starting to rebuild the, the walls and the city and things are going great. Well, they got about to the halfway point, and there were some guys on the outside, a guy by the name of Sanballat, a guy by the name of Tobiah. There were some Arabs, some Ammonites who didn't like what was going on. And last week, we, we saw how Nehemiah dealt with the opposition that's on the outside, right? 
Today, we're going to look at the opposition that comes from within. They're building the walls, they're building the city, and all of a sudden, Nehemiah becomes aware of some conflict, some division, some disharmony within all of the Jewish people that are working hard to rebuild their city. And so, um, I want you to take out your notes. You can look on the jumbotrons, and let's listen to Max McLean read the first 12 verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then accused the nobles and officials, I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned uh, the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Next week we'll look at the end of Nehemiah 5, Lord willing. So last week in chapter 4, as I said, the opposition came from the outside. There were these guys, Sam Ballot, Tobiah, and these, this group. Here in chapter 5, the opposition comes from the inside, which is, which is way worse. And it basically revolves around money. It basically revolves around finances. I was thinking that more conflicts are caused by money than just about anything else. In fact, I'll bet that those of us that are married, a lot of the conflict in our homes at times revolves around money, doesn't it? finances. In fact, there are some statistics out there that say that the number one cause of divorce in America today revolves around money and finances. So what were some of the, the causes of conflict that were going on? Well, let me just quickly run through them, okay? Number one, lack of food was causing conflict within the ranks. Verse 1 says, now the, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers, and they were saying, hey, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to stay alive and eat, we got to find some grain. 
You see, I think they were working on the wall and, and, and doing all this work. And, man, they had their spears and their bows and arrows, and they were protecting everything. And they were working so hard doing all that stuff, they didn't have time to tend their own gardens. So they didn't have any, have any food to eat. Number two, financial bonding, uh, bondage was causing conflict. Verse 4 says, we have mortgaged our fields. We've mortgaged, mortgaged our vineyards. We've, we've mortgaged our homes. All of this just to get food. The only way these people could feed their families was by taking some of the equity out of their homes or whatever, which meant that they were going deeper and deeper and deeper into debt, not to buy a ski-doo or a second house, but simply to feed their families. And that was causing conflict. Number three, high taxes were causing conflict. We've had to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to, to pay our taxes. That sounds, this is sounding like the, the business section of the Modesto B, isn't it? <laughs> Weird how something that happened 2,500 years ago can be so applicable to, to today. Number four, losing their kids was causing conflict. Verse 5 says, we belong to the same family as those who are wealthy, and our children are just like, like theirs. Yet we must sell our children into slavery just to get enough money to live. We have already sold some of our daughters, and we're helpless to do anything about it, for our fields and our vineyards are already mortgaged to others. Beloved, these, these are some hard times. You got high food prices, high taxes, high mortgages. You're working 80 hours a week just trying to keep your head above water. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. In fact, you're so desperate, you're selling off your kids just to get some grain. There's no wonder there's conflict within this, this group of people. But I want you to understand something. These weren't the problem. These weren't the root of the problem. The root of the problem was sin. Those that had money were being selfish. Those that had money were being greedy. They were living in sin. And that's what was causing all of this conflict. I want you to look back at verse 1 real quick. Verse 1 says, Now the men and their wives, everybody that's working, you know, they raised a great outcry against their Jewish Brothers, and here's what was going on the rich Jews were exploiting the poor Jews in this time of crisis. The rich Jews were taking advantage and capitalizing on the misfortune of the poor Jews. You see, those that had money and food were saying, Hey, listen, I'll give you some food if you sell me your house. Hey, you need some food to eat for your family? No problem. You see your vineyard over there? Why don't you give it to me? And I'll give you a bag of grain. I'll lend you money so that you can, you know, buy some food. And by the way, it's going to be at a pretty stiff interest rate. And for those that had no home or whatever for collateral to get a loan, man, <laughs> these rich Jews are saying, I'll tell you what, that's a bummer. You don't have any collateral. I'll tell you what, give me your kids. I'll buy your kids. I'll put them into slavery. I'll put them into bondage here and they'll work for me. And when you got no money, when you don't have anything, what do you do? You got to eat. And if I sell you my kids, at least my kids will have a chance to eat and I'll have some food to give to my family. And so they were doing it. 
huge turmoil happening within the, 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 the ranks. Instead of, you know, caring about their Jewish brothers and sisters and instead of trying to help them during this, this time, they were just taking advantage of them. They were greedy. They were selfish. Now, this was clearly against God's law. God's word says this in Exodus chapter 22. If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. Anybody not understand that? God's pretty clear here. He says, hey, listen, if you happen to be blessed by me and you have some money, you've got some shekels, when you lend it to your Jewish brother, your Jewish sister, you do it and you don't charge interest. You just lend them the money. Now, God allowed the Jews to charge interest to other people, but they weren't allowed to charge interest to each other. They could loan to each other, but they, they couldn't charge interest on it. So these rich Jews were clearly violating God's word, which was causing great division within the ranks. There was a conflict between the haves and the have-nots. That's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. And I want you to know, for me, the most fulfilling part of leadership is working with people. It is. It's the most fulfilling part of leadership, working with people. But it's also the most frustrating part of leadership, working with people. And here's why. Because people are sinful. And so am I. And any time you bring two people into a room or three people into a room or five people into a room, you just got a room full of sinful people. And you're going to get conflict at times. Look, I can be in a room by myself and have conflict with me personally. I don't even need anybody else in the room. It's just my mind, my flesh, that conflict with my spirit, and it's just you know, unbelievable. Here's the deal. Men, you're, a, you're, 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 you're sinful. And you got married to a woman who's sinful. Now there's two of you living in a house or apartment. You're both sinful. Then God blesses you with a child. And as soon as that child comes into the world, now, now you got three sinful people in your home. Then God gives you another child. Now you got four sinful people in your house. Now you got five. You got a whole quiver full of people. Guess what? You just got a whole lot of sin. And a lot of times, everybody's got their eyes on the Lord and things are great. Things will go smoothly in your home, right? All it takes, though, is one person, a dad, a mom, a child, whoever it is, they get their eyes off of the Lord, they start to disobey, whatever, and guess what? That sin causes conflict in your home. All it takes in your business, right, is, you know, as long as everybody's kind of doing what they're supposed to do and they got their eyes on the right place, things are great. One person within the division, within your business, whatever it is, can just cause the whole mess to, to go down, right? Those of you that are, that are coaches, man, everybody can do a great job. Mark, everyone's doing great out there in the football team. All it takes is one guy. One guy, one gal gets their eyes off, you know, the Lord or whatever it is, and the next thing you know, you got conflict. So what's the, what, what's the cure for the conflict? What does Nehemiah do here that maybe 2,500 years later we can all learn from? How do we end the conflict in our homes? How do we end the conflict in our marriages? How do we end the conflict in the businesses that we own? If you're a manager or a supervisor and there's conflict within your division, how, how, how should you deal with this? Well, I think Nehemiah gives us some pretty, 
pretty good things, and, and, and let me just share them with you quickly. Okay, step one is you, you got to get angry at those that are causing the conflict. you got to get angry at sin. Look at verse 6. When I heard their outcry, when I heard about the shenanigans, when I heard about their sin, when I heard about what they were doing, I was very angry, Nehemiah said. Nehemiah is thinking to himself, what good is a wall if the people inside the wall are just ripping each other off? What good is having a wall if, if, if the rich are just exploiting the, the, the poor? What, what good is it? Beloved, Nehemiah doesn't ignore the problem. He got angry. He took it seriously, which is something you have to do when you're a leader. Mom, dad, business owner, manager, firstborn child, unity is a a serious thing to God, and so is disunity. If there isn't harmony in your marriage, somebody get angry. If there isn't harmony in your home, somebody get angry. There's a serious thing when there's disunity that's going, you know, going on. There's disharmony, there's shenanigans, there's sin. The Bible says this in Titus chapter 3. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first warning, you know, go and talk with them. Go and talk with them again. Give them a second warning. And after that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that are turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. Beloved, that's, that's serious. God takes uh, disharmony seriously. And here we see Nehemiah, he was angry. We're commanded to take action when somebody's causing trouble. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. If you're a leader of any kind of group, you know, you're a leader in your marriage, you've you got the title of husband or you've got the title of wife, you're the leader in your home, you have the title of dad, you've got the title of mom, in your business, the team you coach, the division you, know, you oversee at your job, the harmony of your people, when the harmony of your people is threatened, you, you better get angry. Because if you don't get angry, I want you to know, you're going to have bigger problems down the road. And some of you have already experienced that. There was disharmony in your first marriage, and you never dealt with it. You didn't deal with it properly. There was disharmony in your family, you know, one of your, one of your maybe the oldest born child, right? And you just really didn't deal with it. And it just caused all kinds of problems for everybody else down the line. We've all had jobs where we worked in a division or a portion of the company and there was disharmony, there was disunity, and no manager, no supervisor took any action, right? And it just caused more problems. Some of you have businesses and you've had an employee who just has been a tough go. And you kept extending grace and extending grace and extending grace and you never really dealt with it. And man, now you got a bigger problem down the road, don't you? Sometimes anger is, is very appropriate. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. This, this verse tells us that Nehemiah got angry. Now we have to be really careful when it, when it, when it comes to getting angry. The Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry but don't sin. 
You see, God has no problem with you getting angry. There are some things we should be angry about. But if we're not careful, our anger can get out of control, and then it becomes crummy. It becomes sinful. And one of the first things you need to do if there's disharmony in your marriage or disharmony in your home or disharmony in your business or the team that you play on or whatever, you as a leader better get angry. You need to take it seriously. God wants you to get angry at sin. Look, 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 look. here's the bottom line. A leader without some fire in his or her bones isn't much of a leader. When you see something that's destroying the harmony of your family, <laughs> please, somebody get angry. When you see something that's destroying the, the harmony in your marriage, would you get angry? Get angry. If there's ever a moment to get angry, it's when something's causing disunity and disharmony. Let me tell you, the one thing that gets me going quicker than anything, if you want me to crawl up into your grill, <laughs> cause disharmony in this church, cause disunity in this church, I am jealous for the harmony in this church. I am jealous for the unity in this church. And you need to be that way in your home, your businesses, your life, whatever it is. You just don't let it go on. Okay, step two. You get angry. Here's step two. You have to think before you speak to those that are, are causing the conflict. Look at verse 7. Nehemiah says, he's angry. We already know that. After thinking it over, after thinking it over, First, Nehemiah, you know, he, he gets angry, but before he does anything, he talks to himself about it. He gets alone with God, and he prayed about it. The, the Hebrew word is literally, I consulted with myself. There are some times when a leader needs to talk to themselves. You, you need to sit down and say, what's really going on here? I'm, I'm ticked off. I'm irritated. I'm upset. I'm angry. But what's really happening here? God, I, I, I need you to give me the right perspective. Oftentimes, almost, I'll bet a day doesn't go by, I'm in my office and I'm pacing around in my office having a conversation with myself, having a conversation with God. And if there was ever, you know, a hidden camera in there, I'd, I'd be put away for a long time. I, I'm constantly thinking things over. You see, one of the things that you deal with as a pastor of a church is sin. I am an expert in sin. I'm an expert in my own sin, in my own life. I'm an expert in the sins of others. I'm an expert in what sin does to a life, to a marriage, to a family, to a business. I'm an expert in, in how sin can destroy. But I'm also an expert in, in redemption and how sin can be forgiven. 
and how sin can be overcome and how incredible things can happen when a life is submitted to, to Christ. And so I'm, I'm constantly just having to think things over. Look, you need to get angry. There are some things you ought to get upset about, like when you see the sin of selfishness or greediness preventing or harming the work of God. But before you do anything, you do step two. You gotta think it over. Gotta spend some time alone. The Bible says this in James chapter one. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness uh, God desires. And this is basically a verse that clarifies Ephesians, where it says, you know, be angry and don't sin. You see, there's a difference between man's anger and God's anger. Man's anger is when we act in revenge. God's anger is when we act in righteousness. Now, if you do the, the first two things that James says here, be quick to listen and slow to speak, if you do those two things first, the third one's automatic. If you're quick to listen and slow to speak, the chances are really great you'll be slow to anger. It's when you don't think things over that you get yourself into, into, in, into trouble. Now let me give you one thing that you, you ought to think about before you do anything. Let's say there's some disharmony in your marriage. One of you, husband, wife, there, there, there's some sin. Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's one of your parents and you're a child. Maybe it's a grandchild. I don't, I don't care what it is. There's disharmony. Something's, something's going down. You get angry about it, but before you do anything, you're going to stop and you're going to think. And here's one of the things I want you to think about. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your wife's eye or your husband's eye or your children's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Huh. How can you say to your brother, your wife, your husband, child, grandchild, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? <laughs> this is brutal. You hypocrite, Jesus said. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye or your wife's eye or your husband's eye. One of the things you do before you do anything else during that time of simply thinking, and maybe you need to go to your wife. Maybe you need to go to your husband. Maybe you need to go to your son. Before you do anything, you say, God, what about me? What sin is in my life, God, that I'm just not dealing with? What is it, God, in my own life that, that I need to wrestle around with, ask for forgiveness for? You see, one of the things we're really good at is we can see the sin in somebody else's life, can't we? Hey, hey man, you can see the sin in your wife's life, can't you? Woo! 2020 vision, man. You can see the sin of everybody else. Ladies, I know you can see the sin in your husband's life. I know it. And I think Jesus is telling us, you know what? There's a moment when you have to deal with the sin in somebody else's life. There, it comes. But before you go and do that, you deal with your own life, your own sin. 
How hypocritical, men, for you to sit down with your wife and talk about all the screw-ups and stuff in her life when you haven't dealt with your own. Ladies, how crazy is it for you to confront your husbands on, on something that they're doing when you haven't dealt with the stuff in your own life? How crazy is it for you, Dad, to sit down with your son and confront him on his sin when you're just living in sin yourself? You hypocrite. Those aren't my words. We can still be friends. You, you, you can wrestle around with what Jesus said. You see, one of the things you do during that quiet time is say, oh God, what's happening in my own life? I'm about ready to go talk to my teenage son who's got himself all goofed up and causing disharmony in my home. And maybe the first thing you need to do is call your son into the room and sit him down and say, son, listen, I need to talk to you about some shenanigans in my own life. Your father hasn't been a very good example to you of what a follower of Jesus Christ looks like. And I want to ask for your forgiveness. Please, please, son, I'm sorry. But I need to talk to you now about something in your life. You're causing disharmony in this home, and I need to talk to you about it. You see, what tends to happen too often is we go right into it, and we're talking to them about their crud, and they're looking at us like, what a loser. <laughs> yeah, right. It's that old do as I say, not as I do. And on some plane, you know what? That's what your kids need to do because of the fifth commandment. They're to honor you. But they ain't going to respect you. They'll honor you. Okay, yeah, you're, you're dad and you're bigger than I am and I want my allowance, I want the car or whatever. You walk out of the room and... What a toad. That's what they think. I was the youth pastor at this church for 20 years. I've dealt with lots of teenagers. Lots. And I'm not pointing the finger at you. I'm pointing it at me too. I, I have to do this too. Lamentations chapter 3 says, says this. Let's examine our ways and test them. <laughs> before you start examining your wife's life or before you start examining your husband's life or your teenager's life, or your grandchild's life, or your parents' life, examine your own. I think God wants us to pay attention to our wives and our husbands and our children. We need to do that. Nehemiah was paying attention to other people's sin. We need to do that. And you need to get angry at it. But you always need to stop and spend some time in your own life examining your own ways, and then it says, and then let us return to the Lord. The, the thought there is, if you spend some time looking at your own life, you'll have some things to repent of. I got an email from a guy last night who said, man, oh man, I, I just wanted to kill you last night. I was so embarrassed sitting next to my wife, really embarrassed, and I felt my pride welling up because you know what? I'm really good at telling my wife and everybody else about the crap in their life. And the Holy Spirit was just nailing me. And I hated you. But by the time I got home, I was so broken. 
And I had one of the best evenings with my family that I've ever had as I repented of my own sin. You see, if you're angry right now, your anger is really not at me. It's not at me. You, you, you can, you, you, you know, go ahead. I'll take it. But it really ain't at me. It's at the Holy Spirit who's doing a work in your life. And you can dig in and not humble yourself and walk out of here. And, or you can go, wow, I heard from the Lord today. And just spend some time with your family. Step number three. You have to privately confront the person causing the conflict. He says, after thinking it over, I brought the charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, to them, you were all taking interest from your own people. You're sinning. You're causing problems. Knock it off. Beloved, after you've gotten angry and after you've thought it over, you have to go directly to the source. You have to go to the person. You don't deal with, you know, with somebody else or talk with five or six of your friends to get everybody on your side. You don't say in your small group, hey, I got a prayer request. Ladies, listen to me. If you've got trouble with your husband, do not talk it over with all your girlfriends. That's just really crummy. That is so sinful and crummy. Men, you got some trouble with your wife. There's some disunity in your family. Don't talk it over with some other guys. That's just gross. That's sinful. It's, it's just evil. You, you don't do that. Now you got all these gals that are all, you know, taking up your cause, and every time they see your husband, they think crappy things about him, and then the Lord does something amazing in your marriage, and all of a sudden you come back, and these gals all hate your man, or vice versa. You see what I'm saying? You don't, you don't deal with that. You may need to talk with somebody. That's where you talk with your pastor, an elder, your priest, a therapist. I don't care who it is. Some professional. You don't go you know, sitting around and telling a bunch of gals or a bunch of guys all the problems with your spouse. How crummy is that? That is just so unbelievably crummy and sinful. Nehemiah gives us a great example, man. He got angry, he thought it over, and he goes right to these guys. And he says, quit acting the way you're acting. What you're doing is sinful. It's wrong. It's crummy. Don't do it. Listen, if somebody's offended you and you go to somebody else besides them, you know what? You've sinned. You've now sinned. You have to go directly to the person and, and he doesn't, you know, Nehemiah doesn't gloss over the sin. He doesn't make light of the sin. You know, he's not watering it down. He's just confronting them in private. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus says this, if another believer sins against you, could be your wife, could be your husband, could be your parents, could be your child, could be somebody at work, could be somebody in your small group. I don't know, the person sitting next to you right now. I don't know. Go privately and point out the offense. Anybody not get that? Does anybody not understand that? Jesus said, you go to them privately. If the other person listens and confesses, you've won that person back. And that's usually what happens. When you've thought about it and you've dealt with your own life and you go and have a conversation with somebody and say, listen, man, what's, what's going on in our marriage right now is really crummy. This isn't right, or you talk to your teenager and you've dealt with your own stuff and you say, listen, son, this is not, this ain't cool. 
You're causing all kinds of trouble and heartache in our family. Knock it off. You know what happens most of the time? Oh, man, I'm sorry. And they repent. No, you may have to deal with it again. You may deal with it over and over again. I don't know. Now, if, that, if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back. There, there may come a moment when you need to grab somebody else because this is such a serious issue. Now, who you grab is important. You don't want to grab some immature person. You might want to go into the altar room and grab one of our elders and say, listen, I, I've got this situation going on with my son or my, my wife or whatever, and I've talked with her a couple times, and it, 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 things are still not right. Would, would you be willing to go with me? And now all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're there with, you know, uh, an elder, you know, Rob Veneman sitting there with you, and you say, hey, listen, this is Rob Veneman. He's one of our elders. He's a spiritual leader in our church. And this is so serious, I brought him along so that maybe y- y- your ears would perk up a little bit more. Because what you're doing is crummy. What you're doing is causing pain and sorrow in our marriage or in our family or whatever it is, you see. And most of the time, you know what? That really does work. All of a sudden, the person goes, wow. Here's a spiritual leader of the church sitting there going, hey, listen, I'm not sure what's going on, but this sounds crummy. Knock it off. Come on. Repent of your sin, for crying out loud. Listen, I hate to confront people. I do. I hate it. It's not fun. I want everybody to like me, right? <laughs> and so do you. Who, who wants to go and do that? But I've learned that it's absolutely necessary to confront for the good of everybody, okay? Uh, things just get worse when, when you just don't deal with it, you know. Um, step number four is you have to publicly deal with public conflict. There are times when, when everybody knows about something and so you gotta deal with it, right? Um, you may have a teenager in your home that's been so divisive that they've, that they've caused division even amongst the younger siblings and maybe an aunt and an uncle or a grandma and grandpa. There, there comes a moment when you may need to go public with it, get a bigger group together, so to speak. It could be in your business. You know, you had one guy who was causing all kinds of trouble, and you've dealt with them. Maybe it went public. Maybe a whole division now has been soured by a guy, and you've got to bring the whole division in, and you've got to talk with everybody. And that's what's happened here. In this situation, everybody knew what was happening. Everybody knew that the rich were ripping off the poor. Everybody knew it. It was public knowledge, so it had to be dealt with publicly. You deal with things publicly to the degree which they're known. Look. If, if, um, if a person, you know, if it's a personal sin, then you just confess it to God. It's just between you and God. If something goes down between my wife and I, it's just between her and I. And I'll confess my sin. It's never her. <laughs> I'll confess my sin. I don't have to come in here and go, hey, let me tell you about all the junk. I don't have to do that. It's between my wife and I, or between my daughter and I, or between my son and I or whatever it might be. If it's a sin that grosses out the whole church, then guess what? You gotta deal with it publicly. And so here was, here was a case. He got angry, he thought about it, he confronts this group of guys, but the whole town knew about it, the whole city knew about it, and so now he's gonna address the, 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 the whole city. And what was the result of all of this? Well, verse 12 says this. All these guys that were causing the shenanigans said, well, we'll give it back. We're not going to demand anything more from them. We'll do as you say. 
Now, it doesn't always work out that way. But most of the time, it does. When you get angry over sin and you spend some time praying and thinking and getting your facts all straight, dealing with your own sin, and you privately go and love and have a conversation with the sinning person and maybe have to deal with it publicly. You know what? A lot of times, most of the time, my 30 years here at Big Valley Grace, 90% of the time, unbelievable what, what, what happens. And I think when verse 12, you know, when they said, okay, hey, we blew it, we'll, we'll, we repent kind of thing, I think Nehemiah must have breathed a, a sigh of relief. These were the powerful people in the city. These were the people with the money. They had all the power. They had all the prestige. I mean, I'm sure he was thinking to himself, you know, maybe I ought to just let this thing go because if I confront them, what if, you know, they go ballistic? They could shut down the whole building project. But he didn't. He was committed to doing what God tells us to do. And he was going to let the chips fall where they may. If all these business leaders and wealthy guys all got upset and said, you know what, man, we're going to make your life miserable. You're not going to be able to finish this wall. That was in God's hands. He simply was going to do what was necessary. Leadership requires some courage. Being the leader of your home, the leader of your family, the leader of your own life, the leader of your business, it takes some courage to follow biblical principles. And, and I want to end with this. Um, there's a, a great passage in the Word of God that says this. Always speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. When I gave my life to Christ here at this church, um, it wasn't in this location. It was a small church. Uh, we had a softball league. We still do. You know, and, and some guys asked if I wanted to play softball because I like baseball. You know, I was younger, a lot younger. And uh, so I said, yeah, I'd love to play on the church league softball team. And so I went out there and, and I played and, and I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. And we played at different locations because we didn't have fields like we have now. And um, it was church league, you know, it was like Big Valley versus, you know, First Baptist and Big Valley versus North Modesto Church of God. I mean, these were all just brothers, you know, Christians. Uh, and I had known the Lord about a week. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, they just had, you know, volunteers who umpired the games. I mean, you know, these weren't professional guys that had been through training. There's guys and, well, anytime an umpire made a bad call, which was like, every inning, I would go ballistic. I'd be out there yelling and screaming, you blew the call, you did turning my hat around, you know, I was like Billy Martin, you know, what are you, you know, just acting like a total loser. And um, one day, the, I was on the senior pastor's uh, team. And he called me after the game over, you know, we were talking and he said, you know, I want to share with you a verse. He said, you know, the Bible says that we're to speak the truth in love. And he said, Rick, I have no doubt that you know the rules. I'll bet you nobody knows the rules as good as you do. I have no doubt that when you're in that umpire's grill that you're right and they blew it. And the Bible says that we're to do that. We're to speak the truth. But the Bible says that we're to do it in love. <laughs> now... <laughs> You got, you got half of a right. We got to work on the other half. And this is all done, no, nobody else around. 
The following week, uh, he shows up, and he had a, a little sheet of paper about that big, and he had typed on it that verse, speak the truth in love, and he had given it out to everybody, and he brought tape, and we taped it on the inside of our bills, <laughs> speak the truth in love. Hey, now, remember, all, he's only had a conversation with me, but it was something that was very public, but he hasn't said a word. And there came a moment when, you know, the umpire blew it, and I'm, and everybody would take their hat off. I'm not kidding. And they'd point their hat at me. And it was like. Mr. Umpire, you know, um, may a uh, thousand fire ants invade your bed tonight. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm backing out. Oh, man. And I'll tell you what. There was a man who handled a situation in a very God-honoring way. He dealt with me privately. The sin of, of my anger and dissension was just ugly. Talks with me privately. How he handled it publicly was brilliant. He gave everybody the verse. He didn't need to say who the verse was for. <laughs> everybody knew. And then what a great way to encourage me. <laughs> Everybody take their hat off and point it at me. I don't know what conversation needs to happen in your family today. Maybe none. Maybe your marriage. Maybe none. Maybe you need to talk with a parent. You're a child here. You're a teenager here. And you're watching your mom or dad do something crazy. You honor your mom and dad, but you still have to get angry at their sin. Maybe there's something going on in your business. Something going on in the team that you coach. Maybe there's something that needs to be dealt with. May these words of Nehemiah um, somehow be a blessing to you, whether it be today or tomorrow or next week or next month or, or next year or whenever it might be. Why don't you stand over in the venue? Why don't you stand and let me pray for you. Father, thank you, Lord, for being good. You're good, you're good, you're good. I loved all the singing this weekend and loved the time of praying for our lost friends and enjoyed meeting new people in the Welcome Center. Thank you for the times of prayer in the altar room. Enjoyed your word. I pray, Lord, as we exit this place and go about our day eating lunch, having brunch, whatever it might be, we'd have a great time with our families, our loved ones, and and may there be some weighty conversations today. Lord, thanks for your goodness to us. And Scott over in the venue, and Scott here, would you close our time now in prayer?